headphones? If you want. Is it, are we just, we just I like rock them. and roll right into it? Yeah, I like them. You don't have to use headphones. Like, it doesn't make a difference. I like how it feels, though. It feels more like we're really doing a, a radio interview. Now you're really doing the podcast. Yeah. Oh, now. Because now. Yeah, get on mic, Asia. <clears throat> get on mic. Hey, Shelby, has this all been recording? That's good. I like it. <laughs> um, then people can see the real Asia Kate Dillon. Well, they can't see me, Brian. It's a... You've listened to a lot of podcasts, and podcasts. can't you? Don't you feel like you can kind of see the people? Yeah. Although, have you ever had that experience where, like, I remember specifically, you know, this radio DJ on my hometown radio, and the first time seeing Kevin English was his name. The first time seeing Kevin English in real hey, life. Hey, everybody, this is Kevin English, and come on out tomorrow night. We're going to see Fog Hat. Yeah. Uh, today's hits and yesterday's favorites. Yeah. Um, and I remember seeing him for the first time in real life, and just didn't look how I expected. Yeah. Didn't um, match the voice. I'm sure that that happens to people all, all the time who listen. I'll say I I had another, not a similar experience, but it was kind of perfect. I got turned on to this band today called Camp Cope. Do you know them? This Australian mm-hmm. band. You'd love them. Okay. Three women. They kind of took on, I've now found out, they kind of took on the Australian music industry about the fact that festivals are all uh, 90% male headliners and then male acts and that female acts get put on a side stage or an early stage <gasps> like a kid's table sort of and yes but i didn't know any of this i i heard this record uh i started freaking out it was so good i went on twitter to tweet about them and then i saw their lead singer had tweeted not in response to me in response to someone else if you're a cis male don't write it don't review our record it's not for you if you're a cis white male and then I was like, but I really like the music. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I was so much more prepared to interact with that and understand its message because of uh, mm. knowing and working with you mm. and all the work we've all had to do to really try together to understand a changing world. Yeah. I was going to say, did you then feel marginalized and silenced? No, I felt empowered and great. <laughs> no, I, not at all. Uh, it was in response to some critic, I guess, had written about them. Oh, okay. Right. Not in response. But just... And it was like, you know, don't write about us. It's fine. I still was like, um, I had tweeted right before I saw it, listen to this record and just feel everything it makes you feel. Don't try not to feel it. Yeah. I was feeling the things that I should have felt Mm -hmm. listening to it. Yeah. I understood what was going on. But... It spoke um, to you. But I liked that the lead singer was being like, listen... Mm Mm-hmm. You know, fine, mm-hmm. but we don't really need you. Yeah. And it reminded me of the moment of Malcolm X. You know? Uh-huh. It's like, what can I do to help? Nothing. All right. Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Today's guest is my friend, my coworker, castmate, uh, an inspiration, one of the smartest people I know, Asia Kate Dillon, who plays Taylor Mason, on the Showtime television program, Billions. And uh, Asia, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, I'm honored to be here. Uh, Good. So I know you know, because I know you listened to this podcast before we knew each other, but you know that the original thing of the show was, it was about these inflection points, these moments in people's lives when everything is sort of um, in the balance and then it goes one way Mm -hmm. or the other. And so I thought it would be good for us to start on that night that we talked. Um, mm-hmm. I was sitting on my couch. Where were you? I was in my apartment in Brooklyn, in the office den of my apartment. In, in like a chair. And mm-hmm. uh, this was the night that David Levine, you and me, decided that you were gonna, we were all going to take this chance and you were going to play this part, right? Mm-hmm. And talk about inflection points. So, and then I'm going to let you talk for a long time because... Here, here's the thing. Um, it, it's a moment for each of us that um, is the kind that that, that the, this show was built on be, because you were in Orange is the New Black. You were committed to being in it. And I remember somehow, I don't know if I called you or you called me, but we were somehow communicating and we decided let's get on the phone. Mm-hmm. 
because we all wanted you to play the part, but Dave and I weren't sure how it could work mm -hmm. with you being fully committed to another show. Mm -hmm. And through this conversation we had at the end of that call, you and I decided, all right, we're going to try to figure, figure this out. Yeah. And I want to get into in a minute what it meant for you once you were doing it because what people can't know or don't know is there were days you worked 24 straight hours on both shows mm -hmm. um you put yourself through just an incredibly difficult time to do it to to make this all work so can you just talk about and that 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 night like where were you in your life what did your path been to that moment and i want you to get as granular as you'd like like i want to know about all of it like who you'd been as a kid the decision to become an actor everything that led to that moment because then I want to talk about the risk you were taking, the risk that you could work at the top of your game because you'd have to, mm -hmm. since you were doing major work on two shows at the same time. I wonder like how you knew you could and what training led to that. Mm. But I do feel like that moment was the end of a lot of stuff that had happened and then this huge new beginning. So like, where were you and who were you then? Well, um, I guess I'll just start with that night and that conversation. Um, I remember, I remember being so grateful for the opportunity to actually have a conversation with you. It it was, it was um, really moving to me because you actually you spoke. I think you even used the word vulnerable or or something, and I just immediately knew that I could have a real conversation with you, and it and even made me feel more. Um, comfortable and sure that this was that I wanted to work that I wanted to work with you and that I wanted to play this part um, prior to that I had filmed a season of Orange is the New Black a, a recurring character and prior to that I had done um, a show at the Shakespeare Theatre Company in Washington DC and prior to that I had done a play at the Flea Theatre um, a radical retelling of the entire Bible in three acts five hours, um, two intermissions, and I played Lucifer. So I had one of the uh, consistent tracks that was in all three acts. And we rehearsed that play for, I don't know, like seven or eight months, and then we performed the first run of it, I think for three or four months, and then we had a month-long extension. And it was um, the most physically and emotionally challenging theatrical artistic experience I'd had up until that point. And uh, going through that and coming out the other side, and you know, like I didn't, I didn't get sick, I didn't lose my voice, I did, like I, you know, maintained my friendships. Like I, I felt really proud of the fact that I had accomplished that feat. It really felt like a feat that I had accomplished. And once I had done that, I really felt like I could do. And I was like, I can do anything. Um, that combined with something I've only now realized really served me specifically working in television is all the years I spent working in restaurants. Um, Why? Well, because, you know, like a brunch shift, you are showing up sometimes at 8, 9 in the morning to set up the restaurant, and then you start taking customers at 10.30 or 11, and then you're doing... I mean, I worked in restaurants where we had, you know, uh, 250 seats, and if you're doing four turns, that's, you know, 900 to 1,000 people a day that you are interacting with or passing by, and, and main, you're trying to maintain a level of um, positivity and a teamwork vibe and leaving your drama at the door, and you are working and on your feet and expect to be on um, 10 hours, 12 hours, 14 hours, whatever it is, and then come back and do it again the next day with the same level of um, work ethic and positivity. All right, but I got to... That was your approach to restaurant work. <laughs> and it was not... I mean, and I will say that I worked in restaurants for... 16, 17 years, and it was at the end of my restaurant career that I began to understand that, like, it, it, I was in charge of my experience, and so I made the choice to have a good time and really connect with people and say, like, people would say, you know, how are you doing today? I'd be like, man, I'm tired. You know, I worked, I've worked the last three days, but, like, I'm here with you now, and how are you? You know, and just really trying to... Um, focus attention on other people. How did you come to that that realization, you know, that the sort of uh, most intense expression of it is Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, which is, you know, you can't control the events, but you can only, you can, you can control your reaction to yes. those events. Yes. 
so you, you know your situation in restaurants wasn't the Holocaust, but um, but how <laughs> you can laugh in the mic, you don't have to hide it. But how I'm silently? Laughing. Yes, but how um, how did you come to that? Be, because a lot of people find a restaurant job that grind defeating. Yes. Because what I'm interested in about all this is you somehow kept your instrument ready to go and your, which is your instrument being your physical body, mm -hmm. your brain, your heart. Like you, you kept yourself in a state of readiness for when these opportunities would show up. Mm -hmm. A lot of people feel like, oh, these jobs make it that I can. I have no resources left. I have no stores left inside me. Mm -hmm. So how did you come to that Asia? Like, so I would say my experience working in restaurants the majority of the time that I was there was that it was um, soul-sucking, humiliating, exhausting, and I barely had time to keep myself at the ready to do artistic work. And that was incredibly frustrating, demoralizing, and, I mean, it sucked. <laughs> um, and when I moved back to New York, city because I moved away for a period of time when I moved back when I was 28 I moved back understanding that I was going to have to work uh to make money at something that wasn't artistic and I had the most experience in restaurants so that's what I went for and that I was determined to not let it control me in the ways that it had before because I knew I wouldn't be able to um make art and that's what I came back to the city to do so just to go even a little bit more granular. Yeah. How did you codify that for yourself? How did you come to that? Meaning, were you journaling? Were you, mm. uh, were you taking long walks? Right? Because a lot of us just live without, like the unexamined life thing. So I, I get that you made these rules for yourself, this idea, but how? Like how did you figure, where were you when you left New York? Why'd you leave? Where were you? And then how did you sort of, formulate for yourself what this next experience was going to be? Um, I left New York when I was 24. I had been managing a coffee shop lounge um, in Park Slope for a year. And I remember I'd been working at that coffee shop for a month, and the general manager approached me and said, we need a manager for one of our other locations. Would you be willing to do it? It's a full-time job. And I remember saying to that person, well... I'm an artist, I'm an actor, and if I give all of my time to you, I'm really afraid that that means I'm not an artist, you know. And that person said, do it for a year. Do it for a year, gain the experience, you know, make the money, try it out. And if you hate it and you don't like it, you can always leave. And so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll try it. And um, I was working, you know, 60, 70 hours a week. Um, you know, inevitably we had... I think like 20 employees and when you have that many employees people you know call in sick all the time or don't show up and so I was always the person on call and I was making no money I mean I could not pay my rent um, oh, even as managing this place you couldn't pay your rent oh yeah um, and I couldn't pay my rent and I was sick I was you know drinking a lot of coffee and not drinking a lot of water and not eating a lot. I mean, I was just so stressed and overworked and I wasn't being creative. And so it just really all took a toll on me to the point where I said, I have to leave this place. The, the beast that is New York City has won this round. Oh, really? And yeah, and I have to go. And I don't know if I will come back, but I have to go and heal my myself physically, emotionally, and then I'll see. And so then I went back to Ithaca, where I was born, and um, spent some time not working, and then sort of immediately getting a job in a coffee shop, and then various restaurants in town. And, Did you move back home? Yeah. Um, and then... Did started slowly doing theater, like community theater. I finished a Meisner training program also that I began in high school, so I finished that program. Um, and I ended up doing theater in Ithaca and working in restaurants, and I was able to do both. Um, I, I started working on having more of a balance between working in restaurants and making art. Um, but I was still barely able to pay my rent from working in restaurants um, and was, I had this experience actually when I went to school at AMDA, which is 
right over on 72nd. Um, one of the things that school really solidified for me was that I took this really seriously. And that when other people didn't take it seriously and it felt like they were wasting my time and their time, it was really frustrating for me and really clarifying. Um, and I had that experience. I mean, community theater is wonderful, but I, I wanted... I wanted more. I wanted people who took it as seriously as I did, who really felt like it, it meant to them what I felt like it meant to me, which isn't to say I didn't encounter a couple people uh, in my hometown who felt that way, but I just wanted more. And I also, I felt when I was first in the city and even when I left, there was something in me that felt like I hadn't really tried how? What do you mean? I'd, like, I'd, I'm not sure, but I just knew. I was like, if I just decide to go back there and do it, I'm going to do it. This is in the four years that you're home, you're thinking this. is this. like right before, this is in the months before I decided to ultimately move back to New York City. So the first time you were here, were you, you were working all these hours. You took that job, which was a very self-sabotage-y thing to do in a way, right? Taking the, agreeing to do the year. Like that guy, it was a guy, that manager, or a woman, or... Uh, yeah, a man. A man. So this man said to you, try it for a year. Yeah. Some part of you must have known, like, because you said you even said to the guy, I don't know if I should do this. Yeah. You weren't ready yet, really, to go chase the thing hmm. with everything you had, probably. Right. yeah. Because were you auditioning then? I... No. So... AMDA was a two-year program for me, and then I had begun... I started working in restaurants when I was still in school because I needed to. Um, did, they did they recognize at, at AMDA... Were you recognized in any way? Were people like you have uh, your powers of, let's say, concentration or the clarity of your work is, is uh, distinguishing you? Was it, were you able to manifest yet the thing that was inside you? Well, the answer that comes to mind, so it's the one I'll give, is that um, I, I also sing. And, you know, in middle school and high school, there's like the fall play and the spring musical. And I always did both. Um, and so when I auditioned for AMDA, they have or had at the time like a musical theater program and then what they call like a straight acting studio program. Um, and so I auditioned for the musical theater program. And that's the one that I got into. And so that training is, you know acting, singing, dancing, you know, sort of all of the things. And, um, but with a large focus on singing. And I remember after my first year, you have the option to like take five months off or just take a month off. And I took a month off. And um, David Martin, the president of the school, called me on the phone. And he said, um, we at AMDA, I think that you will be better served in our studio acting program than you will be continuing on in the second year in the musical theater program. And I didn't feel uh, judged in terms of like my singing or anything. I, I really felt like I was being hand, I, someone had seen me and was handing me an opportunity to um, develop skills. And uh, usually you have to re-audition to enter the studio program. I didn't have to. I was able to just go in right in third semester and do my second year there in the studio program, which was still dancing, but no singing and acting and um, audition work for film and television. Right. So he, he saw you. He recognized the thing. And did that, yeah. did that affirm something to you? Yeah. I felt like this is someone who understands that I'm taking it seriously. And like they're respecting me enough to call me and, um, and offer me this. And when someone wouldn't take it seriously, when you would go do community theater, because you know there's there's a story I tell about Costi and me, um, which is that uh, I didn't take it acting nearly as seriously as he did. So how would it, um, which at least I could recognize what, what that meant, but how would it manifest or how would it, mm. how would you deal with it? If you were in a scene, would it be someone you could tell they hadn't done the textual work? They hadn't memorized this thing? They hadn't thought about it? Or they just weren't gifted? Um, 
I think it was it manifested itself in much smaller ways that I just picked up on and I just didn't like coming into class at eight in the morning and yeah we'd all been up late like working on our scenes and trying to also we were all like young and in theater school and discovering ourselves and other people. I mean, there's so much going on in an environment like that. And then when people would come in at eight in the morning and sort of schluff in and, you know, oh, God, I'm so tired or talk about whatever, I was just like, that's not, I don't, that's not where I'm coming from. And so I just, it was another moment of being like, oh, I'm, I'm interacting with this whole thing very differently. And why did you take it so seriously? How did you know that it mattered to you in that way? What was it about it? Hmm. Well, I guess my first experiences interacting with art that was profoundly affecting happened at a very young age. Talk about them. <laughs> um, well, there's a handful. The The first time that I saw Michael Jackson perform at the 1988 Grammy Awards on television where he did um, The Way You Make Me Feel and Man in the Mirror, I mean... I just remember being in awe and having, I felt I felt like someone had reached into my heart and was just holding it. I mean, is I guess the best way to describe that feeling. And it felt like ultimate connection between my humanity and someone else's humanity. And, and I just, I think, was I've been chasing that ever since. And then, um, you know, I was in my first play in kindergarten. It was a compilation of Hans Christian Andersen stories. And I didn't have any lines. I was just like in a little dress and a bonnet on stage being a townsperson. And I just remember loving being in that imaginary world and being with my friends. And then there was also an audience who was, you know, vocalizing and reacting to what we were doing. I just remember loving that. And um, when I was in middle school, I was in a play called Lil Abner. Um and I remember there was a scene where the entire cast is on stage. It's like a, a town scene and something is happening between two other characters and uh, something happens and it's sort of like a sad moment. And I just remember taking my handkerchief out of my pocket and sort of very loudly blowing my nose, like going like, you know, and there being this like pitter patter of laughter that came from the audience. And I thought, oh my gosh, like we are, we're connected. Like they're here with me, I'm here with them. And I think it did it one more time and it got another laugh. And then I thought, okay, well, that's my, that's my, I don't know. I've been, I just, it's connection, it's connection. The way that whole thing just like made you feel. Yeah, and also art for me personally, whether it's a song or a movie or a television show or a book or a poem Art is the thing that like cracks me open and and um, yeah, me too. encourages me to go on a deeper journey to find my own compassion and empathy and humanity. And so, I think a little bit. I'm just sort of like, who wouldn't want, who wouldn't want to be given an opportunity to have their heart open? Doesn't yes. mean it will, but I, you know. But the hard thing when you're choosing acting as the art form, it's one of the hardest ones to choose because you can't, it's hard to just do it. Writing, you can just do. You can just write. Mm. Acting, like someone has to give you something to, to act unless you go out and find it. Mm -hmm. It's a hard craft to practice, basically, I think, in certain ways. So you don't think so. So tell me, how did you go about thinking about, okay, I'm going to start getting into this and practicing this thing? Um, well... Tangibly, specifically, I suppose. I mean, I sing every day. Like, I'm, I'm always singing, which inevitably or inherently is warming up my voice and working on my diction and my plosives. It's all that really stuff. unlikely that Taylor Mason's going to sing. I'm <clears throat> just saying, I sing. It's super unlikely. And um, love karaoke. And, uh, and then I am, I read things out loud. Um, I will read Shakespeare out loud. I will read, I'll pick up a play and read a scene out loud. Um, did you do, I mean, was that something you did? That's something I did and something I do. You did in high school, you would do that. Yeah, yeah. Or or I would recite, I mean, I would recite movies. You know, I have so many things memorized. Um, I'm, I feel like that is the way in which I keep myself ready, I suppose, is just continuing to absorb. Did, did you start to have... Yeah, continuing to absorb that stuff and then practice, yeah. internalize it, and then externalize. Yeah. 
you know, your work has this incredible precision and clarity, and not just because Taylor Mason does, but your work, the way you approach it. Did you have, I mean, in the same way Michael Jackson's did, the, his dancing did, right? It had this incredible clarity and precision. Mm -hmm. uh, and then within that clarity and precision, there's lots of room for emotion and improvisation and like life yes. to happen. Yes. How did you, one of the things that um, always fascinates me is voice, artistic voice. So when, when did you start developing hmm. an artistic voice, an approach, a, a way you use yourself? Hmm. Or was it not conscious, which is also fine? I think perhaps it was not conscious. I do feel like, um, you know, my mother is an artist, in, and it manifests itself in all the ways. She's a writer, she paints, she draws, um, the way she arranges a home. And so I grew up in a, in a very artistic uh, aesthetic. And um, so I've always been immersed in that world and art was something that was held as highly regarded as like being a lawyer or a doctor. Um, and so, yeah, I don't really know what else to say other than it's just like always been in me and I, yeah. Well, I guess what I'm talking about is that the way the way that you prepare mm -hmm. for what mm. you do is, uh, I think there's a specificity to each moment, kind of. You're very alive in the moments, but you, and you're able to... Um, take notes and move and shift. But from a, te a technique standpoint, which I think connects to, to artistic voice, hmm. how do you, like for instance, Maggie talks about how she'll be alone in a room and she'll act out the scene over and over again a certain way. Hmm. Um, Costi will just read it a few times, try to feel it, and then come and try to be, you know, he has a quick facility for memorization, so then yeah. try to be, so like how do you th think about it? Um, okay, well... So there are like practical things I do, like, um, and these are habits that I developed over many years that I have found like really work for me now currently, um, which is like I'll get um, the script and I will um, write down all of my lines in one long uh, paragraph without any capitalization or punctuation um, and leaving no space for other people's lines, just in one long monologue. And that is how I will memorize it. Um, in sort of a monotone, non-emotional um, way, just to really make sure the words are in my body. And then I will, you know, say the words out loud while I'm making dinner or taking a shower or whatever, um, or walking down the street to make sure that, you know, even when I am distracted, like when you're on set and there are so many people and cameras and all of these other things happening, that I'm really um, practicing being able to drop into the present, the moment. Um, so that is, I think, so then, so then once the words are memorized, um, which I will say there's a step that hap there's an intermediary step, which is looking up the, the words or references that I don't know. Um, you know a ton of them though. Yeah. I just want to say, you do, like yeah. the fact that like Dave and me, you've memorized a lot of movies oh, yeah. and books yeah. and records. Yeah. We have that. That's a shared thing. Totally. So that you come in with a lot of it on your own. Mm -hmm. And then yes, we always know you're, fucking on it you will look up everything yeah i mean i can't i don't feel i don't feel comfortable <laughs> i mean it just fe it would feel like being unprepared to me but no it wouldn't feel like that it i mean would i would be, be unpre being yeah, unprepared I, it would feel that, that way be and i would be yeah exactly um yeah like an actor could just call like um all the actors in our show can reach me and dave at any time so you don't have to like uh, we don't require someone to go do the work on their own but at least Call us and be yeah, like, yes. hey, what's this reference? What does that mean? Who was Geezer Butler? Yeah. Black Sabbath uh, bass player. But I'm saying, you know, that's not a reference in the show. That's but it could, But it could be. Yeah. And so it's fine to call. But so you'll yeah. do this. You'll look stuff up. So I'll look stuff up because, I mean, I can't remember. I mean, it begins with me not being able to memorize it if I don't know what I mean. It really actually doesn't stick if I don't know what I'm saying. Um, and then I... Um, 
think about where <laughs> where Taylor has been up until that moment and what's happening emotionally in the scene. Um, and then I just show up on the day ready to be present and to listen and um, bring what I've brought to the table and be open and excited to receive thoughts and notes from, you know, you or the director or whoever. And, and also going back to the thing you started with, you also show up really wanting to be a team player. And, and, and to you, it feels to me like that team extends to everybody on set, not just to those higher up on the call sheet or mm -hmm. to Dave and me, but in fact, you seem like it's really important to you to talk, to let the PAs know mm -hmm. you're present and you're there mm -hmm. and a person. Yeah. And that uh, you consider yourself, even before you were regular on the show when you would show up, you, it seemed, were like, hey, we're doing this thing together, so mm -hmm. let's all be in it mm -hmm. together. Yeah. And I'm only, I mean, you know, I think as you talk about that, uh, it reminds me again of restaurant work, which is like, you know, if if the, the people who are considered to be in um, the lower rungs of the ladder, you know, the dishwashers, uh, the... the um, Janitor is not the word, but you know the people doing the me the more menial labor. Those are the people that if they are unhappy, right? Like they put a dirty dish on the plate of the waiter that they don't like, or a server that they don't like, or whatever, you know. And so I think it is important that yes, to recognize we are actually all building this thing together, and we're all working towards the same goal, and we are in a much better position to achieve it if we recognize each other and recognize that like it takes all of us to do this actually all right i have one question for all of the i'm gonna listen to a podcast to help me fall asleep people are you struggling to get some shut eye i hate when i'm struggling to get shut eye. i hate it when i can't fall asleep listen if you answered yes you're in luck because we have a great tip for how you can zonk out more easily mattress firm america's neighborhood mattress store Let's your budget stretch further when you're looking for ways to improve your sleep. They are more than mattress experts. They have the whole package that helps you transform your mattress into a bed, from adjustable bases and sheets to headboards and bedroom decor. They have you covered, literally and figuratively. Go to mattressfirm.com podcast to see what deals are happening right now as I read this sentence to you. They even offer you a 120-night sleep trial to ensure perfection and a 120-night low-price guarantee so you know you paid the perfect price. Look, I value my sleep because uh, I, I have limited time. I'm a writer, primarily, a uh, storyteller. And if I am sleepy, if I haven't gotten enough sleep, I find it really hard to stay focused and concentrate. But when I have a good night's sleep, it becomes much, much easier. Again, go to mattressfirm.com podcast to learn how your sleeping could be monumentally improved but so what's the tool you use because um you do show up and i think this is amazing uh you know if something happened in your life or whatever you might tell those of us who, those of us with whom you have a more intimate relationship mm -hmm. but but you don't show up you are really good at leaving whatever bullshit for the workday aside and just showing up to work. Mm -hmm. That's not just like, well, I learned from restaurant work. Like what, how do you do that? Because most people can't control their, because it's, it's talking, it's controlling your emotions, right? Mm -hmm. And how do you, like what, like, you know, I journal and I meditate, the things I try to do. We all try to do, what do you do? Or is it innate? Have you always been able to do it? Well, like in high school, if you were teased, would you take that with you to the next thing or could you leave it? No. So teasing is, I think, a really good a, a good thing to bring up. I, compartmentalization is the word that comes to mind. You know, the amount oh, of... Oh, so like a serial killer. <laughs> no. Oh, okay. So, when, um, you know, being teased and being bullied, which I was... Um, in in my entire public school career, um, 
I I learned very early that those things could I mean and and I had the incredible support of my mother who anytime I was, you know, being bullied or teased, she was right there to say like you matter and I love you and you're important and don't listen to them and you know, you are <laughs> She was right about all that. Yes. I love her so much. I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky to have had that because if I hadn't had that, I mean, uh, yeah. But go back. So, so you're teased and bullied. Why are you teased and bullied? I think it's helpful for people because a lot of the time we think we're the only ones who were well, or we don't know. Like, so how are you teased and bullied? What does that mean? Now, you don't have to give the people who did it power or name them or anything, but like, well, why and how? You're in Ithaca? So in Ithaca, um, and then also there is a like a smaller town about 20 minutes outside of Ithaca where I went to middle school. Um well, the things I was teased about were the fact that I was, as I still am, very naturally thin. Um, you know, it's interesting. I feel like I grew up in a time where two things were coexisting, where the ideal um, girl woman had was like full-figured and voluptuous and like very, very feminine. And I was not that. But then I also coexisted in a world where I mean, like, Kate Moss was one of the biggest models in the 90s who was, like, rail thin and, you know, um, sort of androgynous and kind of tomboyish. And so those were the ideals at the time. And I was made fun of for, I think, not being the voluptuous thing, but then also made fun of by people, girls who were bigger specifically, because I was skinny. And what I realize, you know, have realized now is, like, oh, they were being told that they were imperfect and that they shouldn't look the way they looked. And so they took it out on me. Were these popular girls taking it out on you? Yeah. The most popular. At the time, you were assigned female at birth. So, Mm -hmm. and you were- I was socialized as and identifying as a girl. You were a girl then. Yeah. And that's what people, that's how you would have, what you would have said about yourself. And whatever you might've been thinking or however that there was disharmony with that. You would have expressed it. Yeah. So you were one of the girls, but then you weren't. Totally. Totally. I, I mean, I... And I I also, um, you know, I was artistic and, and creative, and I think those kids are also made fun of a lot. And um, I gravitated towards what we would call, like, the weirdo kids, you know? Um, and so that... And then I was an outcast because I gravitated towards those kids who were already considered outcasts. Um, And how would you compartmentalize? How would you learn to compartmentalize? Or when did you figure out you could compartmentalize? I mean, I think it just, honestly, I think it just happened at at an age before I understood that was what was happening. I don't, there's never been a moment in my life where I went, like even in my young life where I was like, I'm going to decide to compartmentalize things. And that's the way in which I'm going to survive. You know, it's just... I would say it is innately in me and it is a skill that particularly serves me when it comes to making art showing up on set, you know. Yeah, that's a huge gift. I I had to learn it. Hmm. I had to consciously be like I got to leave that. I mean, for me there. the yeah, um m- my I I if I I would have to allow an emotion to work its way completely through me. Mm before I could leave it and I would carry it, I think, so mm-hmm. that it would be hard for me if I had an argument with some kid and I got into a fight before a class, mm-hmm. it would definitely fuck up the class. Oh, yeah. Where for you, it wouldn't have fucked up the class. No, because I wouldn't want to, I, I didn't, I don't want, uh, people would have known I was rattled, I think. Like. You didn't want to give them the satisfaction. No. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I would just have been thinking about my revenge. Right, yeah. So it was different. Just fuming, yeah. steaming. I would have just been thinking about like, well, yeah. you know. I think I was like- I'm going to name a character after you someday. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was very much just, I mean, again, I think it comes from my mom, certainly, and I suppose perhaps something innately inside of me that I was just like, Who, you, you're not worth my time. You're not worth the time that I would spend sort of going over and over in my mind why you said what you said to me. And I'm not saying that I was like 
unaffected by being no 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 of course you of course not unaffected i'm right late at night i'm not saying you were saying that but just no when you're alone late at night and you're trying to like um then there is a time one has to synthesize right as much as one compartmentalizes you you definitely have to i mean you are automatically put in the position of having to compartmentalize a thing whereas people who aren't bullied extensively don't they don't even have to consider uh, i wasn't and i was never i was never bullied I was never a bullied person. I, yeah. I had, um, uh, there were definitely times where I was like a, a jagged element in the flat surface. Yeah. And so I would have to be knocked back down to the flat, be part of the flat surface. Sure. But I was never, bu- I, I was completely never bullied, right? Yeah. I was a, a cis male who was decent at sports. And yeah. <laughs> no, and like yeah. f- uh, sharp-witted <clears throat> enough that it wasn't that probably worth it to yeah. come after me. Uh, so I I was ostracized occasionally, but never bullied. It's different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, to- totally. So I didn't have to do that. Mm-hmm. But it's all served you. Did Did you have mm-hmm. the sense then? Um, did you have the sense then, though, that you were different in a special way? That you were going to be successful somehow? That they didn't see who you were, but you saw it? I'm nodding, yes. <clears throat> yes. I mean, I think, you know. You did, though. But I did, too, so. Yeah. I mean, I would I would say I felt special. I knew that I was special. My mom had told me I was special. And I think everyone, I mean, I really feel like everyone is special. And if everyone were told that they were special. I, and I know, I know yes. you're. No, that's true. But I'm talking about something else. Okay. Huh. Because what I'm talking about is that the very shit, the thing that I knew was the very shit, the very stuff that I'd get shit for, mm-hmm. which was seeing the world slightly differently, being interested in like language differently, mm-hmm. um, understanding the human, the dynamics that were going on in a different way mm-hmm. would be the, the stuff that I would be whatever. I, yeah, I, would help some, propel you. Some part of me knew, even though it was incom- inchoate, I didn't have the answer, it wasn't complete. Mm-hmm. Some part of me knew, well, those things... I think are going to like get yes. me somewhere. So did you know like, oh, these things that you guys are fucking with me about, mm-hmm. I'm going to use. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the way that you just described it, sort of like not really knowing that or having language for it or that, that really feels true. I mean, this feeling of just being like, gosh, you, I'm awesome. And like, you just all aren't seeing it. But I know that um, yes, all of these experiences that I'm having ultimately actually make me a stronger person. And I think that um, comes from the fact that I watched my mother, you know, go through her own struggles and every time come out stronger, wiser, better. Like I had a person who I could watch do that. And then from, I mean, the characters that I um, had an affinity for were people who had been through the most extreme, you know, devastations, difficulties, struggles, and had... And and had used those things to become, you know, their their best self. And mean, so I watched you mean other the fictional characters. Fictional characters, yeah. Fictional characters, yeah. And um, and so I, I was just like, well, I can do that. I can do that if I really, if and when I really try. Flashdance had the same effect on me. <laughs> Listen. Jennifer uh, Beale and Michael Nori. I was like, yeah. look, I know. So, yes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you knew. But the the reason I, I like talking about this idea of like the um, the kind of I- incomplete but somewhere but powerful notion that uh, they, not only can they not define me, but the, the way they're trying to define me, uh, not talking about me personally, but the me, uh, is what I'm going to use because I think a lot of people listening to this have had moments like that in their lives mm. where they had this hope and then uh, the very hope that they have, the secret dream, mm-hmm. when the predators can see that, they want it's the very thing they want to... All they care about killing mm-hmm. is that thing. Yes. And so finding a way to keep that thing alive mm-hmm. gets got me through a lot of days and I imagine it got you through days. Yes. And I want people... I Like in my mind, I want that to people to own that as well yeah. for themselves. Uh, it makes me think of, uh, it makes me think of a moment. I was, um, I was doing the play at the flea and I was living in Brooklyn at the time. And, uh, you know, the show got out at 12, 15, 1230. And, um, 
I went to swipe my Metro card at Canal Street and I had like my one fare on the Metro card and I swiped it and it said, please swipe again. And I swiped it and it said like insufficient fare. So it had like eaten my fare. And so I walked home, you know, through Manhattan uh, across how many, the, yeah. I think I took the Brooklyn Bridge, across the Brooklyn Bridge. And I remember as I was walking across the bridge thinking like, if this is what, like, these are the lengths that I'm willing to go to. If this is the position <clears throat> that I am in for whatever reason, because this, because I know that I'm supposed to be doing this play and playing this part, and like, then it's, I will, there is no way that this won't lead to some kind of, to more, to more, to more success, you know. I mean, that's fantastic, though. So your mother, who was this supportive and is this supportive and exciting for you. Yeah. As you started to realize, though, that you weren't traditional in certain ways, right? With sexuality, uh, gender, and all yeah, that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you were still living in a kind of a small town. Like Ithaca is a city, yeah. but not a... Um, and you were... Yeah, I, would, I mean, I would just say it's a much smaller version of New York City. All of the same sort of problems that a big city has, Ithaca has. And it has a lot of culture, a lot of art, a lot of music. But when that when you started realizing like, hey, I'm also attracted to women or hey, I'm not sure who I am, how did that how did you deal with that uh hmm. at home and in your community and how did it affect you? Well um be, be, you know, because you've become this such an important figure for living who you are very uh Loudly and in a, a proud and, loud and proud, yeah. But no, I mean, but no, I, mean, a, I mean that really, yeah. So I'm wondering, were you that comfortable in the beginning? Was it easy for you, or was it hard? So I remember um, one of my first crushes was on my best friend at at the time. Um, I was probably in fourth or fifth grade. Um, a a girl friend and. Um, I remember, you know, we hung out all the time and we slept over at each other's houses and um, we were in gymnastic camp together. And I remember um, one day at gymnastics camp, we were like lying on the trampoline next to each other. And I just, and I will say, you know, I was too young to, maybe it's never too young, but I, I didn't ask for consent. But I just leaned over and I kissed her on the cheek. And I remember like f feeling like it it wasn't just a platonic hit. Like it, it came out of a, a loving and energy place. And she sort of, you know, um, flinched, flinched. And then we didn't speak. And then we just continued with the day or whatever. And then she wasn't allowed. We weren't allowed to hang out anymore. She wasn't allowed to come to my house. Um, and you know, sh listen, I will own and admit that I might've, made her very uncomfortable. We were young and who know, who knows? At, at eight years old, I don't, you couldn't have known you were making someone no, uncomfortable. But, but I just do, I do remember that like she was ripped out of my life um, in ways that were beyond my control. And I remember thinking, now I remember thinking like, well, that's not fair. Like if I were a boy, like it wouldn't be, there, it wouldn't be weird, which it still could have been, still might have been for her. But, but also, you had that conscious thought? Yes. If I were a boy, this wouldn't be happening. Yeah. Like, huh. like I remember feeling like I'm being rejected for something that is so, and I'm, I'm presuming this looking back. I, I can't know. But it felt like a real rejection of, of me as a, based on my body specifically. Um, and so for, I would say, a period of time after that, certainly up until I would say like ninth grade, I specifically... You walled it off. Yeah, I walled it off. I was like, I like, I like boys. I have crushes on boys. I want to date boys, you know. Um, and then I ended up going to high school at an alternative high school, uh, the Alternative Community School in Ithaca, now called the Layman Alternative Community School for the principal. Um, and that was a place, you know, we didn't have grades. We had evaluations. We had morning meetings where, you know, students got to stand up and say, like, this is how I feel and this is my opinion. And we were all listened to and – Everyone was, you know, queer or coming to terms with their sexual orientation. And it was, I was able to, um, 
allow the walls to come down uh, for the first time and allow myself to not feel like my feelings for girls were bad or made me bad. So were you able to kind of exhale them a bit? I, I was, but also, you know, when I was in high school, I think it was when I was in high school, but like Matthew Shepard was murdered. Brandon Tina was murdered. Um, and and those are just the, the murders of, you know, sort of white queer people that were held up in the media, you know. Um, but But I was... I was afraid, you know. I cut my hair short when I was 14. I I was dressing semi-androgynously and I was I was afraid, you know, even in Ithaca walking down the street that people were looking at me or that I would be a target. You know, I think the decision to be loud and proud certainly easier for me as a a white person who was assigned female at birth, light-skinned white person assigned female at birth. Um but it was still fucking scary, you know? And so then, then when I moved to New York city, you know, it was, it it was a real, that felt like the wall really coming down and a real entrance into a type of freedom and self exploration that the first time. Yeah. Yeah. That you, the first time that you came here and then, yes, the first time when I came here when I was 17. Yeah. And then when you, when you left and went, back home at, mm-hmm. at 24. Mm-hmm. As you said, New York won that mm-hmm. round. Mm-hmm. Did you, was it a, what happened to your ambition? Where was it at that moment? Did you still, did you consciously know I'm going to go um, do a bunch of work and get myself ready to come back and do this thing? I mean, I will say I was pretty sure I was never going to come back. I mean, I was like the city is a the city is like a drug. I mean, it is addictive, it's exhausting, it is very expensive. You know, there are moments when you just feel on top of the world and there are moments when you are just, you know, sick, literally, figuratively. And I I really questioned whether or not I that it was the place for me, that it was going to be a place that ultimately um energized me and so I was I left prepared to never come back um and then how quickly after being gone were you like oh no no I'm I'm coming back I'm just counting years uh I mean really I moved back in 2008 the beginning of 2008 to Ithaca, and then I moved back to the city in February 2013. And I would say it wasn't until like a few months before I moved back to the city that I that I really made the decision to come back. And did you know when you were coming back when you finally did? Were you like, I'm going to go do this now? Like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to leave again until this happens. Yeah. So what? So what had happened was um, my very good friend Tom, who I've been friends with for a very long time, was living in New York City and was a resident director at The Flea. And he, for many years after I'd moved back to New York, I mean, back to Ithaca, was like, you got to come back to New York. Like, what are you doing? You know, you got you to gotta do the thing. You got to come back and do the thing. And then when he was working at The Flea, he said to me, he was like, I'm working with a theater company that I think, like, you would really um, thrive in. It's a theater company that is looking for <laughs> real people. People with neck tattoos is what I mean. Um, and so I just thought, I was like, all right, I'm going to go back to the city and I'm going to get into that theater company. And I'm going to, that, and that was my initial goal. Going back to something we were talking about earlier, like how did I, how did I make the decision to like really give it all to restaurants, so to speak, so that it wouldn't um, drain me in the same way? I knew when I moved back to New York that I would have to work in restaurants and I wasn't going to audition. I made the choice to give all my time to working full time in a restaurant, and I made that choice consciously and willingly, and and didn't and reframed it as the the thing I had to do first to get to the next place, not as a thing that was going to be in my way or hinder me from getting to where I needed it to go. It was a catapult. It was, yes, it was a catapult exactly. And um, and so that kind of brings us to that moment when you came in. So you get orange, which is a huge life-changing, the first life-changing thing, right? Mm-hmm. You get orange as the new black. Mm-hmm. 
and you have a, a really good part on that show, but not one of the lead parts on mm-hmm. the show. Mm-hmm. But a, you're on the show. Yeah. Um, not as a regular, but as recurring a... Recurring is, yeah. A recurring, but booked for a bunch of episodes, and you do a season of the show. Yeah. And then... Um, and when that happens, just so people understand, so if a show books a recurring character for a lot of episodes, then that person is in what's called first position. That show is in first position, which mm-hmm. means if they need the actor, they get the actor. Um, and so you're not getting paid as a series regular, you are not on the posters as a series regular, but you are exclusive, and you're not a purely exclusive to them, but you um, are not allowed to just willy-nilly do whatever else you want. When they pull you, you you have to come. Yes, and if you want to, if you are playing a recurring character on a show and they have first position, you have to ask their permission. That's what that means in order to, to do, do other, other shows. Yeah. And then they, that, and, and, and even they if they no. give you permission, it's with the caveat, you have permission unless our schedule is such that you can't, um, that it won't work out practically. Yeah. And so this was our hesitation about casting you in Billions. Mm -hmm. This is our concern, dude. Yeah. Uh, Which was, um, how can you do both shows? And you somehow convinced me on the telephone. And I guess you were convinced that that we had real good plans. You know, our plans Mm -hmm. for this character were such that it would be worth it. Mm Mm-hmm. But can you just talk a little bit about what that year was? So that was last year when yeah. Taylor Mason became something of a cultural touchstone. And, um, you know, the result of the work that we're about to talk about was this great work that you did on the show and and the fact that that Taylor became this, as I say, sort of cultural touchstone. Um, it was so close to not happening in so many different ways. So mm-hmm. just talk a little bit about sort of, you know, you came in audition three times we immediately had a way to communicate with one another. Mm-hmm. Like it all just made sense. Mm-hmm. But how did you think about it when we were having that conversation that night? I was sitting on my couch or in your apartment. How were you thinking about this whole question of could you really give everything you had to these two different characters at the same time, which did require at least once for you to do 24 hours straight of work. Yeah. So what? how were you thinking about it? And then how did you do it? Um, I honestly don't know if I thought too much about it because I, or the way that I thought about it was, well, I just have to be in the moment. I just have to take it moment by moment, day by day. And, And I love a challenge and I really rise to the occasion when there is one. And so knowing that, um, you and, David were willing to give me this gift and that the producers were ostensibly willing to work together to try and make the schedule work. Us uh, and the orange is the new black. Uh, yes. Yeah. I just was like, if these people are, are going to, are willing to go to these lengths for me, then I am going to go. There's no question that I will go to. Did you go to the orange lengths. people yourself and say this other thing's important to me? Can I, did you have conversations? No. Or you didn't have to? No, I didn't have to. I didn't have to. Um, and and so therefore, I mean, there is never a time when I am not um, prepared. But I, I particularly was grateful for the chance to like really, really show up, really give it my all. Just explain what a typical week would be like, because I mean, people are always like, <laughs> I don't have enough time or I don't have enough energy. Can you just describe for just describe like what a three day period could be like during that? Okay. Start like you're in your apartment. I'm in my apartment? Okay, so, okay, so I'm in, gosh, what was it? So I'm in my apartment, and uh, it's 9 p.m., and I set my alarm for 3 in the morning. Yeah, this, this is what I want to hear. So so I set my alarm for 3 in the morning, 9 p.m., I go to bed, because I want to make sure I get six hours of sleep, because I know coming up is, like, three days of crazy times. So get up at 3, uh, my pickup, well, actually, I wasn't, I wasn't being picked up at the time. Um, and so 4.30, I would like call the car service and they would be there at 4.45 and I would be at the pickup 
point uh, by whatever, 5.30 to drive out to where we were filming. Like a van with you and some crew. A van with me and some crew and some other actors. And um, and this would be on Orange or on our show? or either this, show. I'm sp- Now I'm speaking specifically about a time during episode two of Billions and episode two of Orange okay. when I Good. was filming so both who's at car, the same time. Who's, who- so this was for Billions. Okay. And so we go out to where we were filming Axe Capital last season and um, we have a, a full day. I mean, I'm there from like seven till I think like five because I had a hard out to go to Orange. Now, one of the reasons that it was able to work for me to do both is that miraculously, the majority of the work that we were doing on Orange was 10 minutes away from where we were working on Billions. And so a van from Orange came to Billion set, and I got in and went over to Orange. You finished your day of acting on Billions. On Billions. As Taylor Mason. As Taylor Mason. Took off my costume, got in a van, went over to Orange for an 8 p.m. night shoot. They were starting their day at 8 p.m. They were starting their day at 8 p.m. So get to Orange, put on that costume, and then I worked until... um, 2.30 in the morning and then I had a friend whose parents have a house in Suffern I think it was Suffern and Suffern happens to be like at the triangulated point between where we were filming Billions and Orange so I had the car from Orange take me there once we'd wrapped at like 3 in the morning and um, I think I like you know took a shower and <laughs> got in bed probably by 4 to get um an hour and a half of sleep to be up at 5.30, to be ready to be picked up at 6 in Suffern to be on set for Billions again. Um, and I worked on Billions that day. It doesn't stop here. Scenes with Damien? Scenes with Damien. So you're playing with Damien Lewis all day. Yeah. And that episode had huge stuff for that you. That was the, yeah. It was really your, wow, we're really elevating this character. Yeah, I mean, this moment. is during the time we were filming like the scene on the balcony and or all of the... Yeah, the stuff, stuff in episode in 202, oh, yeah. which is Taylor Mason distinguishing themselves to Bobby Axelrod. Yeah. Um, so worked that day on Billions, whatever, seven to again. I think we actually wrapped it like five or six to get picked up again to go back to Orange to do another night shoot on Orange from whatever, eight till two or three in the morning. Ended up going back to Suffern for a second time because I was like, well, I should just do that again. And then same thing, waking up the next day and going back to Billions and working on Billions You had day. three days in a row on Billions and two nights on yeah. Orange. Yeah. And uh, you were able to switch between those... I think it was three. You were able to switch between those characters and do that thing. Mm-hmm. And that's the stuff that's on television. I mean, mm-hmm. that is the stuff that... That's what you see, yeah. That you see. Mm-hmm. And, and you think it's like that... Essentially, like those compartmentalizing skills you learned from being teased in a way, <laughs> like kind of though paid off in your ability to compartmentalize and be 100% this thing and 100% that thing and also not complain during it because you did not complain during it. Like we knew what you were doing. Yeah. Like I, I mean, I knew you were going to the other show. I remember one morning you were like, how much sleep do you get? And I was like, oh, like an hour and 45 minutes. Yeah. And you were like, what? I was like, how? How? Yeah. But you didn't complain about it, which is also a choice that you made. I suppose it's a choice. Well, yes, it's a choice. But I also, what would I have complained about? I mean, I just don't know. To me, I'm just like, what would I have complained about? I mean, being tired, I don't even know if I experienced being tired, actually. I was really just... But I also will say, like, I drank a lot of water. I didn't overdo it on coffee. Like, I I was constructively resting on set every moment that I could. And In fact, David Levine actually, I think, has a picture of that, of me just lying down on set for a moment. Um... So, yeah, just doing whatever I needed to do to to get it done. And do you remember, did you crash that weekend? No. Or were you still adrenalized? No. And in fact, I remember being very proud, again, of the fact that I was like, I did that and I didn't get sick and I didn't, like, whatever. I don't feel emotionally drained or I think when – you know, certain types of exhaustion set in. You can get sad. You can get angry, certainly, you know. But I was not, I was just elated in my exhaustion. I was exhausted for all the reasons that I want to be. Well, that is as good a place to end on as any because to be exhausted in all the ways that we want to be is sort of like a great 
goal for this kind of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot more that I want to ask you about, but like I'll see you yeah. tomorrow or the day. Yeah, tonight, yeah. tonight. actually. Yeah. And then um, a lot more um, often. Asia, it is such... Um, and you know, we didn't talk about gender a lot because I wanted... Because I... You know, there is just so much more to... Like, there's so much more to me than my gender. There's yeah. just so much more to you than your gender. Yeah. That um, I feel like you talk about that stuff a lot all over the place because you're asked about it. And if there is anything about that that you want to cover, I'm here for it. Uh, but uh, I do think that um, beyond that, the thing that's amazing about you is the rigor with which you apply this incredible intellect to this work. And the thoughtfulness and um, the clarity. And so I wanted to focus on that stuff, which I think came came through really clearly. So thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Asia's active on Twitter and Instagram. You can follow them there, and you should. Uh, Asia's Instagram is really great. Where can people find you on that stuff? At Asia Kate Dillon, both on Instagram and Twitter. And I am at Brian Koppelman. You can also email me the moment bk at gmail.com. Don't send me scripts or anything like that because I will burn them. Um, and uh, come out to the live. Uh, Asia has spent more time acting with Dan Soder than almost anyone else on our show. Maybe Damien just second to Dan. And um, uh, it's going to be Dan Soder and me live April 8th. How you not you to come hang with us? That sounds amazing. You got to yeah, come. Totally. And um, so come out. April 8th, nycpodfest.com, and uh, watch Billions, March 25th at 10 p.m., Showtime anytime, once it starts. Catch up between now and then. Binge the first couple seasons. The first season maybe is slightly less good because there's no Taylor Mason. It's really still pretty good. But, um, and uh, season three on its way. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>